All right. Well, I think all of us uh, have at some point in our life asked God for a sign. Well, maybe if you're not sure too much about the God thing, maybe at least the universe when you're in a decision, you don't know what to do and you're like, just tell me what to do. Um, my wife, Christina, did this a couple times when we were dating in response to me. Uh, one time was after she broke up with me. She went on this like week-long missions trip thing and she prayed, God, if I'm supposed to be with him, when I come back, have Dylan be the one that picks me up from the airport. Now, just for some context to let you know, um, I didn't pick her up from the airport because that would be very, very weird. And part of it was we were in college at UNC Wilmington, and so they have a very tiny airport. I mean, like three or four gates. I mean, it's tiny. And so uh, she broke out with me. All of our friends knew it. Her little mission trip people knew it. Imagine little old me telling the person she said to come pick her up. I say, no, I'm coming, and I'm there. Like, they would think that's a stalker, right? So I didn't do that. Um, later, when we were talking about getting married, one day she was driving home from the Raleigh area back to Wilmington, and so she was on 40, and she was praying, God, if I'm supposed to marry him, would you let me know like, if this is the good thing or not? Like, Give me a sign. And as she's praying, she looks up out of her uh, dashboard, or da her, you know, the front of her car, whatever that thing's called, and uh, she sees a massive sign. You've undoubtedly seen this if you've paid attention to it on 540, or on 40 on the way to Wilmington. She's praying, should we be together? And she looks up and she sees this big yellow sign with red letters that says Dotson Pest Control. <laughs> Dotson is my last name, if you're not familiar. And so she's like, does this mean yes, because it says Dotson, or does this mean no, because if I marry him, this is what marriage will be like, right? And so she didn't know, but she asked for a sign. Now, if you know anything about signs in the Bible, you know that they can be quite confusing, particularly signs about the end of the world when Jesus is going to return and what that all is going to look like. Well, today, as we continue through the Gospel of Mark, we are going to read a passage where Jesus is talking about such things. And he's talking about the signs, people are asking him the signs to come by which they're going to know these things are going to happen. And like I said, if you know anything about this stuff, it can be really confusing. And so I, I have a graphic just to show you guys where we're going this morning really quickly. Um, I'm just kidding. We're not going to do this. Some of you are like, what? Uh, so this is, maybe you are familiar with these sorts of things. What happens is like people will take different passages of the Bible and they'll try to predict like where we are in the timeline with Jesus coming back here and here's what's happening this time and then here's what's happening there. And so you have all these graphs trying to figure out when God's going to return and when's everything going to be made new. Now, I just say that, and I, and I sh share this, but depending, on, uh, depending on your church background, you might be some have some familiarity with stuff like this. Just to say, as we get ready to read Mark 13 this morning, I don't think this is what Jesus meant for us. Um, we can try to do this. We can try to figure out where we are, where God is, the timeline of what's going to happen and how it all ends. But I would submit to us this morning that this is not the point of the Bible, and so today, uh, my goal, really this week and next week, um, I'll say this, is not to get lost in the weeds. However, there really is no other way to explain what is happening in this text in Mark 13, other than to try to explain what Jesus means by all of it. And so today and next week, it's kind of feel, feel like it's like summer school, okay? You got to track with me for a little bit. You will be confused, but I still think God has some good for us, something good for us to learn this morning, okay? So it's going to require a little bit of work. It's going to be a little bit of a different vibe this week and next week, trying to explain what's going on. Uh, but that being said, as we continue our study through the Gospel of Mark, here's the question we're looking at this morning, and that is, how should we prepare for the end of the world? How should we prepare for the end of the world? And this is not like a bait and switch thing. Like, this is literally 
what we're actually looking at this morning. This is literally the question that the disciples are going to ask Jesus. How should we prepare for the end of the world? And so uh, today we'll be in Mark chapter 13. If you have a Bible, <clears throat> excuse me, you can go ahead and flip there. Uh, if not, there's a black one that you can uh, read. And if you don't own one, you can take one of those black ones home. It is our gift to you. Again, we are in what's called Passion Week. Uh, the Gospel of Mark uh, uh, focuses one-third of his entire gospel on the last week of Jesus' life. And so we've been on Tuesday for a while now, and he's had a lot of debates with various religious leaders. Uh, last week, if you were here, he then gives, uh, takes some time to do some teaching on his own. And now he's going to be leaving the temple with his disciples. And this is what it says, Mark chapter 13, starting in verse 1, it says this. As he, which is Jesus, was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, look, what massive stones, what impressive buildings. Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. And so what's happening here is Jesus is leaving the temple physically, but it's also symbolically, this is the last time that Jesus will be in the temple in Jerusalem ever. And so he's leaving and the disciples are marveling at how massive this temple actually is. In fact, for the majority of people, the temple in Jerusalem will be the most impressive structure you will ever see in your entire life. You have, like, you had, it had this gold dome top in the middle of it. Uh, you had <coughs> stones, excuse me. You had these stones that were multiple tons in weight that you would have a hard time understanding how they even got it up there and how they constructed it the way that they did. It was absolutely uh, amazing and beautiful and huge. You also have to remember that none of Jesus' disciples were um, originally from Jerusalem. So it's not like they saw the temple all that often. And it was really a sight to see. In fact, um, at this point, the temple had been under construction for about 50 years because Herod, who was in charge of the Roman Empire of that, in that section about 50 years prior, decided to expand the temple. Because again, although it was a religious thing for the Jewish people, It was also economic, uh, political. It was quite the tourist attraction. And so he's making it even bigger to bring in more wealth into the region. And so it is strikingly uh, massive and big and probably in some ways breathtaking. So the disciples are marveling at this. As they're talking about it, Jesus is like, oh, yeah, by the way, it's going to be destroyed. The question is, how? And it's quite the claim. I mean, it would be like us if you were to go to Washington, D.C. and check out the White House and the Washington Mall and seeing all of the monuments and all that sort of thing. And as you're leaving, somebody saying who you really trusted, who seems to be right on everything and has done some pretty powerful stuff. It's like, oh, by the way, it's all going to be destroyed. Like You would be freaking out right? That's what's happening here. Not that maybe the White House necessarily is as beautiful as the temple would have been, uh, but in terms of what it represents, right? That if someone were to tell you Washington, D.C. is going to be destroyed, you and I would be like, man, life as we know it is over, right? Something bad is going to happen. This is what they were thinking, no doubt, when they hear Jesus say this. And so he says this in verse 3, if we keep reading. It says, while he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, again, this is Jesus, across from the temple, as is after they left, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, which were four of his disciples, asked him privately, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Right? How do we know what you said, like when it's actually going to go down, when the temple is going to be destroyed? How, what's going to be the sign? How are we going to know that it's actually going to happen? Now, 
again, it's just worth pointing out here that the Mount of Olives uh, rose about 300 feet above Jerusalem. It was separated by a pretty big valley. But if you're on the Mount of Olives, Mount of Olives you can actually see over the wall or the, the temple walls. Now, you, granted, you're kind of far away, so you can't really see all that's going on. But you can see over the walls into the temple. It's this massive structure. And they're asking, hey, when is this actually going to go down. Now, again, this, the location here is significant. There's no doubt uh, that Mark tells us they're at the Mount of Olives because according to Zechariah chapter 14, it was an Old Testament book, uh, the Mount of Olives is the place where God declares the capture and destruction of Jerusalem, will, which will usher in the day of the Lord. And of course, what we're going to read about in Mark chapter 13 is the destruction of Jerusalem and then ultimately when Jesus is going to return again. Uh, no doubt, Mark is trying to show us that Jesus is consciously assuming the role of God here, that his day has come and he is going to tell us what this is actually going to look like. So again, they're trying to figure out what's going to happen, how is this going to go down. They're undoubtedly freaking out. And here's Jesus' response to the question for a sign. Verse 5, Jesus told them, watch out that no one deceives you. Verse 6, many will come in my name saying, I am he, which is, in other words, saying that I'm the Messiah, and they will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. These things must take place, but it is not yet the end. That's significant. For the nation will rise up against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines, and these are the beginnings of birth pains. In other words, uh, they want to know, again, when this is going to occur. Now, again, it's important for us to realize that they are likely assuming that if Jerusalem is going to be destroyed, it also means that God's judgment is going to occur and that, that God is going to return. So in their minds, the destruction of Jerusalem is also meaning really that the world is going to end. And so they want to know what's going to happen. They're, they're, in their minds, again, they're not, they're not separate events. They're going to happen together. They, they have to happen, kind of, they, they work together. And so what Jesus does here is it gives it indications of when the temple will be destroyed. Because remember, in their minds, they are likely associating the destruction of the temple to the end of the world. But their question is specifically about the temple. And that is what Jesus, at least here, is talking about. So he's going to talk about this. He says there's going to be false prophets claiming to be the Messiah and the chaos of all that's going on. They're going to say, I'm here to follow me. He's going to, he says there's going to be wars and skirmishes. There will be earthquakes. There will be famines. But then what does it say in verse 7? It says, but this is not the end. And so what's hard, one of, the, one of the difficult things about what we're going to be reading here this morning is not only is it confusing, but it also maybe has a certain emotional ties for some of us, depending on your church tradition. And so we can read what Jesus is saying here, import it to the end of the world stuff when that's not what's happening. Here he's saying all these bad things are happening. It's not that the end of the world is coming. He's saying that the destruction of the temple is coming. And of course, historically, we know this happened. Uh, this happened, you know, this conversation's happening around the 30s AD. Uh, the temple was actually destroyed around 70, not around, in 70 AD. And what happened a couple of decades after Jesus, there was a lot of tensions between various Jewish sects and the Roman Empire. And so there was lots of different skirmishes and wars. Uh, there was, you know, certain famines and earthquakes and things that happened. We had very, you, you have, you know, various false prophets or messiahs that said that, that they had Jesus who has returned 
Learn had come up. You can read about all these things if you really want to nerd out about it. And then eventually, in 66 AD, all war broke out between uh, the Jewish people and the Romans. And then in 70s, I guess the, the Romans were essentially like, we're done with this. We're going to do something radical, and we're going to destroy the temple completely, even for all the money that it brought in for them, because they needed to stop this rebellion. And that's what ultimately happened. It all got destroyed, and in 70 AD, the temple was no more. And then it says this in verse 9. It keeps going. So he, he warns them that some bad things are going to happen. It's going to be kind of crazy in, in the Judean area. That's how you know the temple is going to be destroyed. But then he says this, verse 9. He says, but you be on your guard. They will hand you over to local courts, and you will be flogged in synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings because of me as a witness to them. And it is necessary that the gospel be preached to all nations. In other words, Jesus wants his followers to be prepared. He's only talking to a couple of disciples here, but later on in Mark 13, he pretty much makes it clear that he wants this to be taught to all of his followers, what he's telling them now, that they should be prepared, not for some utopian fantasy uh, that God will rescue them from and everything will go well for them as long as they're following Jesus, but that their suffering will have a purpose, that as followers of Jesus, they will suffer. They will be not only rejected by the Romans, but also the Jewish people. And a lot of bad things will happen to them, but in their suffering, uh, the gospel will spread. And as they suffer well, people will see the goodness of the gospel, or when some of them flee to other parts of the Roman Empire because of persecution, the gospel will also spread. And again, this is another part where we can kind of misunderstand what's actually going on here, because in verse 10, what does it say, right? It says, and it is necessary that the gospel be preached to all nations. Now, remember, He's talking about the temple being destroyed and what will happen from it. And what this verse has done, uh, many mission organizations or maybe well-meaning Christians have taken this verse to say that Jesus cannot come back until the gospel is preached to all the world. Now, I'm not saying that is or is not true, but I am saying Jesus' return is not dependent on us. Like, we don't decide when it's going to happen. And in the context of what, of what verse 10 is saying, it is not that the gospel has to be preached for all the world before he returns, because, again, that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about what happens when the temple is destroyed and these Christians are persecuted. What he's talking about is that this persecution will provide a context for many different people and nationalities and people groups to hear the gospel. That's what's going to happen because of this. As you get sent to jails in various parts, as you flee, as you suffer well, the gospel will go forth, which is why he then says this in verse 11. He says, so when they arrest you and hand you over, don't worry beforehand what you will say, but say what is ever, whatever is given to you at the time, for it isn't you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. In other words, what he's saying here is that when suffering comes, don't worry about trying to convince people, being Mr. Apologist and having all the intellectual arguments, saying exactly right, the right thing. What he's saying here is trust that God's spirit will speak through you and he will help you be a faithful witness. That if you continue to follow me and trust in me, the spirit will do a work in what is going on in your life. And then he says this, verse 12, he says, brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of my name, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. 
So let me just ask real quick, if, if you're a, uh, who, as you're reading this passage, flogging, beating, death, people dying, people hating you, uh, who would say they wish they were an original disciple right now? Anybody? No, I'll say it for you. No, no one does, right? This is not sound good. Because what he's saying here is that this persecution, these pain, these wars will break up families, that for many survival, which is understandable, but for many survival will become more important than faithfulness. And in fact, we have, if you read first century documents, uh, we have reports of what would happen here. You would have Christians that would be jailed and it would be offered uh, less sentences or lighter sentences if they would kind of tell on their other Christian brothers and sisters to find out what was going on. And so you have all of these things happening. And so it was really difficult. Like it was really difficult for Christians in the first century with all the stuff that's going on. Now, that being said, what's interesting about what Jesus is doing here is that no blueprint for the future is given or how long all these things will last or when exactly it was going to go down. Jesus simply encourages faithfulness because, and if, you, and if you are faithful, it will result in salvation for those who trust in him. As in verse 13, it says, everyone who endures to the end will be saved. <coughs> in other words, he's not focused on, let me give you the sign of when exactly so you know how to be prepared. What he's saying, the best way to be prepared is to simply trust and to follow me. And so again, another question for us as we read this, right? if you were a disciple, would you fear the future? I think the answer is yes. You would be really freaked out that Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. All this suffering's going to happen, a persecution. And so uh, even in the midst of the confusion of all that's going on here, I think there's two things that we can at least take from what's going on here. Here's the first one. That believers are not promised a pain-free future. Even if some of these things are confusing and what we're going to read in a second is even more confusing, what we're seeing here is that believers are not promised a pain-free future. In fact, many times in Scripture, we're actually told the opposite, that following Jesus will be difficult for you. And it, part of that could be persecution, part of that because pursuing, uh, uh, fleeing from sin is hard. Uh, uh, trying to honor and love people over your own desires is not always the easiest thing to do in the moment. It can be difficult to follow Jesus. And so really this presents a weird dichotomy though, because at the same time, being wise and following the Lord should result in better results overall. In fact, we have books of the Bible like Proverbs that talk about that. The book of Proverbs, they're not promises, but they're basically saying, if you do these things, your chances of these things happening are greater. And so we have all of these pieces of advice and words of wisdom in scripture. And yet at the same time, denial of self for others and persecution at the same time is hard. And so I think what Jesus is just laying before his disciples, again, he knows what's going to happen to him just in a couple of days, let alone what's going to happen to them the rest of their lives. And I think it's helpful for us to know, no matter what, uh, with what you might be going through yourself, is that following Jesus will not help you live your best life now, at least not in a material, self-serving, get whatever I want sense. In fact, following Jesus can make your life more difficult. Following Jesus is the good thing and it is the right thing, but if your motivation or expectation of what that means is off, you will be disappointed. One of the things that I have discovered in my own personal life and in ministry, uh, talking to many other people, is that sometimes we get really frustrated with God because God doesn't do the things that he actually never promised to do. Like, <clears throat> we assume, if I'm faithful and I'm just a good person, I do the right thing, then bad things shouldn't happen to me. 
And so bad things happen to us, and we get frustrated and mad, not just because that's a human reaction, but because we feel like God has not upheld his end of the bargain. But yet Jesus is saying, no, following me in this life can be hard for you. We are not promised a pain-free future. But here's the good news in spite of all those things. We are promised is this. Believers are promised that God will not abandon them. Your future might not be everything that you want it to be, but it will not be without God. Because what does he say again in verse 13? He says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. And so I just want you to know, if you're walking through something difficult right now, if life is not what you would hope it was going to be, that pain and suffering in your life does not equal abandonment from God. That's not what that means. It does not mean that God has turned his back on you. It does not mean that God is angry with you. Of course, it doesn't mean that it, you can still feel that way, but the truth is that he has not abandoned you at all. In fact, following Jesus again means that things are going to be difficult for you at times. And so what he wants them to do <coughs> more than anything else is prepare. It makes me think of this. Um, I get the privilege to talk to a number of church planters through Acts 29, our network, and some other things that I do. And, and one of the things I tell them after we have our conversations at the end, I always leave them with uh, two things. <coughs> I say, I got two things I want to tell you. Uh, the first one is this. I am so glad that I am not you. <coughs> so that's encouraging. I was like, listen, you, what you're doing is awesome. You'll see God move in a lot of different ways. But I'm glad I'm not you. I did this thing once. I ain't doing it again. I will support you, but I'm not doing this. Uh, and so like, oh, great. That sounds awesome. Thanks for encouraging me. But here's the second thing I tell them, and I think it goes with God not abandoning this. Here's what I say. I say, at the same time, what you need to remember is that those people who do what most people don't will see God move in ways that most people won't. People that do what most people don't will see God move in ways that most people want. Well, now hear me. This is not applicable to only full-time vocational pastoral ministry. This is applicable to anybody in any season of life and vocation and job uh, and school situation and whatever. That when we take uh, faithful steps of following Jesus in the midst of the difficulties of life and the uncertainties of life and we reject uh, what's, what's comfortable and what's easy to do what God is asking us to do, you get to see God move in really cool ways. And I think what Jesus is trying to encourage his people here, the disciples here, is that you'll see my faithfulness show up. I will not abandon you, but you have to continue to trust me. And then he says this, if we'll continue reading in verse 14. Again, they're freaking out. The end of the world, Jerusalem, they think the temple is destroyed. Their life's going to be over. Not, not promise pain-free, but I'm not going to abandon you. Then things can get even worse, verse 14. It says, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand, then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. A man on the housetop must not come down or go in to get anything out of his house. And a man in the field must not go back to get his coat. Woe to pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days. Pray it won't happen in winter. Now, this is one of the most difficult passages to understand, uh, particularly when he talks about the abomination of desolation, and then Mark throws in there, let the reader understand, something that is extremely confusing. Uh, and so uh, what's going on here, again, really quickly, the abomination of desolation comes from uh, three cryptic references in the Old Testament book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 9, 11, and 12. Uh, Daniel, the first half of the book of Daniel is all the stories that like we teach in 
kids' church of like Daniel in the lion's den and being thrown in a fiery furnace, things that are like actually horrifically scary, but we're like, hey, so cute, woohoo. Uh, anyway, but then the second half of Daniel is what is known as apocalyptic literature. Uh, the book of Revelation is known as apocalyptic literature. There's a couple other passages of scripture. Um, apocalyptic literature is, does not mean end of the world. That's kind of like what we assume. Uh, what apocalyptic literature literally means is to be unveiled or uncovered, that God is showing somebody something that they could not have seen or understood themselves. Of course, some of this stuff has to do when Jesus will return. And so in the book of Daniel, uh, this abomination of desolation, uh, it's talking about the day of the Lord when God is going to return. He's going to come and judge the world and introduce his, his everlasting kingdom. And so in the book of Daniel, the abomination of desolation, it's about a scandal that would defile and profane the Jerusalem temple, but it doesn't tell us exactly what it is. So the question is, what exactly is Daniel referring to as the abomination of desolation? And of course, what is Jesus referring to as the abomination of desolation? Now, real quick, I'm going to do this quick. I know it's a lot of information. There's a couple of things that people su su suggest that this could have been it. Uh, for example, in the 40s AD, there was a, the Caesar of Rome was Caligula. He wanted to have a, a statue of himself built inside the Jerusalem temple. Now, it's really fascinating because the, the guy who was in charge of the Roman government or the army at the time in that part of the Roman Empire was trying to put off doing this because he knew that if he tried to erect a temple or uh, the statue <coughs> in the temple, that the Jews would literally, I mean, it would, it would result in all-out war. They weren't going to let this happen. So he tried to delay it. Eventually, Caligula dies. And so that, that, uh, the statue was never uh, assembled. And so people could say that, but when the statue was never erected, so that probably wasn't it. Um, people, some, you, you could argue that perhaps it was the Roman army that was led by a future emperor, Titus. But he was the one that was in charge of the Roman army in 70 AD where they destroyed the temple wiped it out completely. And so he literally stood in the holy place because it wasn't there anymore. Um, again, the problem for all this stuff is that Mark himself, or Jesus in Mark, does not locate the abomination that causes desolation. Uh, he do, it does seem to happen somewhere in Judea because of the geography and stuff that he's talking about, hopefully not traveling in wintertime. Um, but so they're saying, well, maybe that was what it was, the, the, the destruction of the temple. Uh, some people will argue that perhaps it is the, uh, the abomination of desolation refers to the man of lawlessness that you can read about in 2 Thessalonians, uh, who's also known as the, as the Antichrist who exalts himself. He does some really scandalous deed. We're not exactly sure what it is, but it will trigger the day of the Lord. The Antichrist does some crazy stuff. And so maybe that's what Jesus is talking about. It's worth pointing out, however, that in 2 Thessalonians and here, one of the biggest warnings was not to try to predict when this is going to happen. But all that is say, there are a couple of things that it could be, but we don't know exactly what it is. And to make it more confusing, um, this, the abomination of desolation certainly could be linked to something that was happening in and around the temple. I mean, that would make sense considering that's what Jesus was talking about. But what also seems to be going on here is what is referred to as a double referent or a double fulfillment. In other words, it's a historical reality that also anticipates an ultimate fulfillment in the future. So again, for example, you see this a couple of, no, many times in the Old Testament where you have prophecies that meant something for the people at that time but then Jesus also fulfilled later. So a great example of this is Isaiah chapter 7. If you're familiar with the passage, you know, the virgin will conceive and have a child. And we talk about it at Christmas. Um, that was very, the, the, the prophecy that Isaiah was giving to King Ahaz of Israel at the time was a very real prophecy that was actually played out within a couple of years. But at the same time, the New Testament writers later on looked back and said, no, Jesus even fulfilled it even more. And so what seems to be happening here 
is that Jesus is using the destruction of the temple to now also talk about the future when he will return. And so if you're not confused yet, just a little bit more, verse 19, it says this, for those will be days of tribulation. And this is where he's switching to talk about the future. <coughs> the kind that hasn't been from the beginning of creation until now and never will be again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would be saved. But he cut those days short for the sake of the elect whom he chose. Now, when it says those days, this was a term in Jewish literature for the end of time. So it's very obvious here. He's now talking, he's using the destruction of the temple to also now talk about when he is going to return for the actual end of the world, right? The end of time before Christ's return will be difficult. That's what he's saying here. Um, just like it was difficult for believers in the first century Rome in the 60s AD when the temple was going to be destroyed, that God has graciously saved and, will, and, will, and redeemed those who are faithful then, and he'll still do that in the future as well. So things will be difficult in, Rome, or in, in Jerusalem. Things will be difficult too when Jesus is about to return. And then he says this, verse 21, then if anyone tells you, see, here is the Messiah, see there, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. So lead astray those who are followers of Jesus. Verse 23, and you must watch. I have told you everything in advance. I have no idea what you just told us, but thank you for telling us everything. And I was kidding. Um, what's happening here is he's saying that just as many false prophets arose before the temple was destroyed... What he's saying is that there will be many false prophets that are going to arise before I return as well. It will be the same in the last days. Now, we'll talk more about the last days next week, too. Mark 13 really should be all preached together, but it would take a long time, so we, we split it up. Um, but what's happening here is that Jesus, more than anything, is encouraging believers not to believe them. Which, again, as we'll see next week, false prophets, at least according to Jesus, also include people who try to predict when he is going to return. According to Jesus, that was what makes that is a category that can make someone a false prophet. Because as we'll see next week, not even he is going to do that. Now, when I say that, I want to say this: There's nothing wrong with like questioning, like COVID or wars or whatever. It's like is she's going to return this. There's nothing wrong with that. But then to, to take those things and say, well, this means that this is going to happen. According to Jesus, makes you a false prophet because you have no idea, and that's not even the point of what we're supposed to be doing. We're not supposed to be predicting. We're supposed to be faithfully following. So all I have to say, this is a lot of stuff. It's a lot of information. But to summarize, verse 1 through 13 is about the destruction of the temple. Uh, verses 14 through 23 and beyond, we'll read next week, is more is about the temple, but also more than that. But I think if we could sum up what Jesus is saying here, as we think about the end of the world, or we think about the end of our world. It's like when things are going on in our life and it seems really difficult and we don't know how we're going to make it through. I think what he would encourage us to do is to fight against false hopes. To not trust and believe things that can't do for us that we think they can do. So we want to fight against these false hopes. And so what this means for us is that when life is hard, 
when things are confusing, when we want to make sense of life to find clear answers and we try to do these different things. This is, by the way, why conspiracy theories exist, because it's really hard for us to not be able to make sense of things. And so we try to try to latch on to anything that will make something confusing, make sense. The questions for us then, however, is what are the false hopes in my life? Like if you think about yourself right now and the difficulties that you're facing and the questions that you have, what are the things that you seem to turn to? to try to do for you what you can't, what you want them to, what they can't actually do for you, but they make you feel good. Now, I want to be clear here. There's nothing wrong with having things that help us in times of need. The question is, can these things actually do for us what we think they're going to do for us? Can that hobby, uh, can our political party, uh, can that pill, can that screen actually ultimately do for us what we want, or is it a temporary fix or solution for our anxiety and our fear? Are we going to fight against these lesser things that can't be for us what we want them to be? Or are we going to fall prey and follow them for a temporary satisfaction all the while missing out on the God who loves us and is inviting us in? Let me put it this way. When we we started this morning, we we said we're looking at this question. How should we prepare then for the end of the world? When Jesus is talking about the fall of Jerusalem, certainly they think it's the end of the world as they know it. certainly the end of their world. And how are we supposed to prepare? Like, what are the signs? What are we supposed to do? And yet Jesus tells them some things of what's going to happen, but that's not what he focuses on. In fact, that's never what he focuses on. Well, what I would encourage us, I think what Jesus would encourage us to do, when you think about the hardships in your life and the difficulties in your life right now, not just the end of the world, but like right now, the really difficult stuff that some of you guys are walking through. As I was considering that and thinking about these things, what came to mind was a part of a well-known hymn, that undoubtedly many of you guys have heard of before. And I think as a reminder for us, as we try to find answers and signs and wonders to prepare, I think more than anything else, here's what Jesus wants us to remember in the hardships of life. And that's this, that our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. It's not built on end of world charts. Um, What will save you when life is hard is not you, What will save you when our culture is continually, quickly moving in a direction that maybe is not very God-honoring, is not retreating and hiding from the world? What will save you when you see all the tragic things going on in the world is not to ignore them? I mean, maybe watching the news less wouldn't hurt some of us, right? But it's not to pretend they don't exist. What will save you, what will redeem you, what will give you grace and comfort and peace is Jesus. You see, in this passage, what the disciples want, disciples want is an answer of when. When is this going to happen? They probably think, like we often think, as long as we know what's going to happen, then we're going to be okay. Of course, Jesus knows better. And so instead of giving them an, example, or an answer of when, he gives them an answer of how, of how to prepare, of what to actually do so that they can be okay. The gospel, because again, in a couple of days, forget about the the destruction of the temple. In a couple of days, the disciples' worlds, as they know it, are going to be done. Jesus is going to be handed over. He's going to be crucified. He's going to be killed. And it looks like it is going to be completely all for nothing. But what does he do? Three days later, he defeats sin and death and rises again so that anyone who would trust and follow him can experience the grace of God. The gospel, again, is not just some feel good, hey, trust in me because I want to be this awesome leader and everyone to talk about me. No, it's trust in me because I'm actually God who has come to do for you what you could not do for yourself. 
The gospel is that God came into time in the midst of our brokenness and our doubts and our questions, even if we don't even ask the right questions, (coughs) to say, I love you, to say that I'm here, and to say, when your world seems like it's over, I have not abandoned you, I have not turned my back on you, and I'm still welcoming you in. And so as we consider this confusing text, the question again for us is, what have we been hoping in? Like, what have you been hoping in lately, right, for, for the promotion, for the relationship, for the house? Like, and there's nothing wrong with having good desires, but are we hoping that these things are going to be the ultimate fulfillment for us, or do we actually have a proper perspective? I think one of, the, one of the best things we could do, perhaps this week, to help you with this is simply pray this prayer. Pray this prayer. Jesus, would you help me trust you this week? Would you help me experience the hope that you offer? Because it's not found in me. It's not found in me trying harder. It's not found in me getting that job or getting that relationship or moving to that place or having everything work out the way that I want it. Hope is ultimately found in you, and you're offering it to me. Again, Jesus says, teaches all these things knowing exactly what is going to happen. That in about 48, 72 hours, he is going to die a horrific death to give his life as a ransom for many. For the same disciples who are often questioning Jesus, often trying to use Jesus for their own ends and their own means, they are going to see and experience what it looks like for Jesus to fully lay down his life for them. And that is what he's offering us as well. And so again, as we think about the end of the world, we think about maybe the difficult things in our own lives. Our, our hope and our trust and our remembrance is this, that our hope is built in nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness and what he is doing for you and for me.